everyone, and welcome to the Cinematchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are back with another 5 verse 12 matchup for you guys this week. Today, we have Lincoln, which is our fifth seed, versus The Good Liar, which is our 12th seed for this week. So going into statistics of this movie, we have Lincoln that comes in at an 89% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 2005 biography Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. This was translated into film in 2012 by Steven Spielberg, who produced it and directed it, nominated for 12 Oscars, a huge presence during award season, a ton of great critical reviews for this movie. So the Oscars, it won two for lead actor for Daniel Day-Lewis and one for production design but was nominated for Best Picture, lost to Argo that year, which is in an upcoming matchup for us. It's on our bracket for this bracket challenge. And then was also nominated for Supporting Actor for Tommy Lee Jones, Supporting Actress for Sally Field, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Film Editing, Costume Design, Sound Mixing, and Score. So really, really, really big. The score also, fun fact, was done by John Williams and composed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Did he get a nomination for that? Yeah, it was oh, nominated for Best oh, Original Score. Yeah, oh, only his 80th of his career. <laughs> I know, yeah, tons of nominations for him. But it was performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And if you guys didn't know, we're from Chicago. So proud Chicago moment for that. Um, going into The Good Liar, we have The Good Liar that comes in at a 63% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 2015 novel of the same name by Nicholas Cyril if I'm pronouncing that correctly, if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, was translated into film in 2019, directed by Bill Condon. Uh, no Oscar nominations for this movie. Again, a movie with some very weird nominations. We talked last podcast about some Teen Choice Awards. This one was nominated for a Satellite Award for Helen Mirren and then was also nominated as an AARP movie for grownups. And she was nominated. Hilarious. <laughs> she was nominated for Best Actress for that. Did not win. But I didn't know AARP had their own movie awards. A movie for grownups awards. I had no clue. But you learn something new every day. And now we know that AARP is dishing out awards to people, which is really cool. Um, and I just assume they recognize older actors, which translates right into our themes of these movies, because there wasn't a lot of huge plot crossover themes of these because you have a biopic and then kind of a crime thriller drama type of movie. And so our theme that we found of this movie and in reading the reviews for The Good Liar, I stumbled upon this and then it kind of set a light bulb off in my head that one of the positive reviews for The Good Liar says it's nice to see older actors get some actual character work and get some actual like evolution of their characters, some good plot points, some really tricky things they have to do. And I think going into The Good Liar, you look at the ages of the two main actors and you have Ian McKellen, who was 80 when this movie was shot, and Helen Mirren, who was 74 when this movie was shot. They both look great, though. They do. They look really great and they move really great. Like they act really well. I thought overall they carried the entire film. And I think that's why we chose to talk about this theme this week, because these older actors are given these characters, these complex characters, but also they carry the entire movie over all of these younger people who are in it. Like it really is 
when those two are on screen together, the movie moves a little better than when they are not and when they are doing their own thing. But when they get together, they have really good chemistry in a lot of these scenes. They do. And the whole base of the movie is that Ian McKellen's character comes into Helen Mirren's life. They set up some online dating profiles looking for dating slash companionship. But that's not what Ian McKellen's looking for. <laughs> I know. So as all of our podcasts go, this is not going to be a spoiler free podcast. So if you haven't seen I mean, Lincoln, there's not really a whole lot of spoilers, but um, if you haven't seen The Good Liar, we are going to talk spoilers and a little bit of a twist in that movie. But the whole premise of The Good Liar is that they set up these online companionship profiles. They meet at a restaurant, they start talking, and then Ian McKellen fakes a injury of sorts. And Helen Mirren's like, why don't you move in with me? And then Helen Mirren has this grandson who Steven. Yes, yeah, Steven, who pops in from time to time and is just very leery of Ian McKellen's whole character. And I think throughout this podcast, we're probably going to refer to their characters by the actors names. I'm going to try not to, though. <laughs> I know. But to be fair, they have different names throughout the entire movie because Ian McKellen's basically a con artist who is trying to con Helen Mirren, this impressionable, naive, older lady, and trying to take her money, basically, and transplant so he, it into an account in the Caribbean. Yeah, so he's not even using his real name. His no. character is not using his real name. His character is using a fake name. Right. So he goes by... Roy. Roy in the movie, but his real name is Hans. And then she goes by Betty. Betty, but her real name is Lily at the end. So it's confusing because it kind of pieces it a little bit because his character goes back and forth and you learn more about his true identity as it goes on, but you don't learn about her true identity until the very, very end. But going back to our original point, they carry this film because you do have these younger actors coming in, some of these supporting players. You have Steven, the grandson, who's a younger guy who has a pretty big presence in the movie. But like you said, when Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren are on that screen together, they just light it up. And we were captivated by this movie. It was very fun to watch. Yeah, well, you brought up Steven. And through the first half of this movie, it's almost this battle between Steven versus Roy to see who Betty almost likes more, who she listens to more. It's two people telling Betty what to do and they're on opposite ends. And it's really fun because in most movies where something like this happens and two characters have opposing viewpoints or are trying to convince another character to listen to them, it's usually two people around the same age. So it's very fun to see a grandson versus a grandmother's love interest. Right. And it's very fun looking at his character because here's the big spoiler of the whole movie is that he starts out by being her grandson. And then you find out that she's been playing along with this all the time. And she has won over Ian McKellen's 
cunningness and she's basically bamboozling him and taking his money in the end and that Stephen was working for her and wasn't actually her grandson. And so she tells Ian McKellen that this guy isn't my grandson. He's been working for me. He's been on to you. But we do find out that it is her grandson's boyfriend at the end. So she doesn't reveal that piece of information to Ian McKellen's character because she doesn't have to. But throughout the whole movie, his character arc is really interesting because the first time he picks his grandma up from the date she's on with Ian McKellen, he's skeptical of him and almost cold. And so you're watching this movie and you're like, all What's right, I, right. Like you're like, I get it. He's protective and he's the protective grandson and he's watching out for his grandma and doesn't want her to get into a relationship with somebody who's going to swindle her or take advantage of her. But also he does act very cold to this seemingly nice older gentleman. Well, that's what it is. Watching this movie, you are on Steven's side because you already know that Roy is a scammer and Roy is just a complete con artist. And you're like, man, Steven has good instincts. But then this whole movie flips when we find out that Betty is actually the mastermind and the puppet master behind everything. And it's funny to bring up Steven like Steven was a big part because he seemed to be a big part until you realize that this whole story is actually fit inside another story. And it was never what it was ever intended to be. It's supposed to be like this movie where you're watching it and you're like, oh man, I hope this old lady doesn't get scammed. But she's really just scamming everyone the whole time, even us. And I think the big question with critics and with myself that I had throughout this movie is, did you see that coming? And let's get to that a little bit later because I think that transitions into our strengths and weaknesses. But I want to talk about Lincoln and the a little bit of the difference in the themes of these older actors doing this really great character work because the secondary characters in Lincoln are also older actors, but there are some secondary characters in Lincoln like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Lee Pace, who are playing younger guys, but are totally outshined by these actors. I mean, we start with Daniel Day-Lewis, who... Not necessarily old, but older. Not older, not necessarily as like older senior citizen age group as Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen were. But Daniel Day-Lewis was 55 when he shot this movie. And what's really interesting about this movie is that Spielberg had this in production for 10 years. He was trying to get it off the ground. He had the idea for it. So in 2003, he approached Daniel Day-Lewis for this role. And Daniel Day-Lewis turned it down. He was like, I don't think I can do this. This is too big of something for me. I don't think I can do it. So they casted Liam Neeson in this role. And then Liam Neeson dropped out because he thought he was too old to play Lincoln when he was like 58 or something. And so he was only a couple years older than Lincoln was during his term. So he dropped out and then Daniel Day-Lewis signed back on to do it. So it was a really interesting like casting thing going on. But yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis was 55. Well, can we talk about perceived age? Because those two people that were going to play this movie at two different times are around the same age. But Daniel Day-Lewis almost seems younger when you're watching him. He doesn't seem old. He does not seem 55. He feels younger. He does, but the makeup in this movie does the job for him. Yes. It's in incredible makeup. He looks 
stunningly like Abraham Lincoln. It's really, really great. But going back into those supporting characters, you have a ton of older-ish actors who are playing supporting characters. Sally Field being one of them. She plays Mary Todd Lincoln and she's 65 when this is shot. And there was some controversy around her character. I guess not controversy, but she really, really wanted to play this role, like was begging Steven Spielberg to cast her, wanted this so, so bad. But she's actually 20 years older than Mary Todd Lincoln was while she was filming this. So they casted her because she was great and she was great in it. And I didn't see any like disparaging issues with her age at all. Um, So she's a great secondary character, was nominated for an Oscar for supporting actress in it. Then you have Tommy Lee Jones. I'm glad you got to him. Oh, he was great. He was 65 when he shot this. Really, really, really great in this movie. Nominated for an Oscar as well. But here's the thing. He's almost the main character in this movie at times. He is because a lot of this is very centered on him and his momentum behind. uh, Clearly, if you don't know what Lincoln is about, it's about passing the 13th Amendment. So it's interesting because Lincoln is kind of in the background of this movie. Like he's main the forefront of getting this passed. But he's not not doing the actions. No, not. He's not in that House of Representatives. He's. Because he can't, you know, it's not his yeah. place to be. But, but it's interesting, like you said, Tommy Lee Jones is a huge driving force. And I would be interested to see what the on-screen runtime is between those two. Because he was in the movie for a long time. And it's a long movie. It's two and a half hours long. And he was in it for quite a bit. Yeah, I was very curious because you said he got nominated. I was curious on if he would get a lead actor. Because even though... Daniel Day Lewis is playing the title character. Tommy Lee Jones feels like he's in this movie for way longer. And it feels like he almost takes the movie as his own, as maybe this shouldn't be called Lincoln. It should be called Thaddeus Stevens. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I, I think we can probably transition into strengths now because I think we're talking about a lot of the strengths, especially with acting and Lincoln, unless you had some more things to say about just the character work of the older actors. Well, yeah, just Tommy Lee Jones is a great older actor and he's always played the older guy in a lot of movies. We watched no country for old men a couple months ago and he's the old guy in that. He's the guy that's not keeping up with the outlaws that are running around with this money. And even going back even further, Men in Black, he's like the older, like the older guy. He is the the veteran of Men in Black. He always plays the older piece of the story. And he's that's the difference between these movies, though. You talk about Men in Black. You talk about old, No Country for Old Men. Those are two movies where you needed someone to be that age, but also for Lincoln, like you couldn't cast a 20 year old in this movie. You couldn't cast Joseph Gordon Levitt as Tommy Lee Jones's character. And that's what I think is interesting going into these themes and looking at differences. And if we're talking about battle worthy pieces, the fact that the good liar cast two people when you could have easily had two 20 year olds be the main leads in this movie. Sure. It's basically scamming. It is. Anyone can scam anyone. You can write about scamming 
it's a hundred percent that, but these two characters, these two actors bring so much to it. Whereas Lincoln, you needed a 50 something year old to play Lincoln. You needed certain actors to play it. And that's why I think the pull for Sally Field was so interesting because she defied what was in that age grouping, but did the part so well and didn't cause any distraction to it. Yeah. I'd like to go to The Good Liar. I just want to bring up real quick, because we are talking about older actors, in comparison, if this movie was younger actors, you couldn't do it the same. Like, the story couldn't be the same. Like, what do you think the scamming would be? Because my opinion on that is... I think it would be a more romantic quest for the scamming, because this whole plot was built up for Helen Mirren to be a caretaker. Like, she took... Roy in to take care of him because she's like, you can't walk up and down the stairs of your apartment. If you can barely walk, come live with me. I live alone. My husband died, like all of these things. And I think if you had those younger characters, you set it up as a romantic conquest, right? Like you set it up almost as like a weird obsessed stalker type of thing where this same setup, these people go on a date, but then this person pursues her and he's too good to be true and moves maybe even in. like a catfish type of thing maybe it could be but I loved that this was different and I loved that it was a different take on things and played to some stigmatized vulnerabilities we see in older people Yeah. yeah and it was really cool and it was a fun movie Transitioning into strengths and weaknesses, I guess we can start with Lincoln and keep on that. What were your weaknesses for Lincoln? My weakness for Lincoln is a pretty big one, and it's the fact that his death isn't shown. It's implied by some guy saying that he died. It was very sudden because it's weird because you know what's going to happen, right? And you're watching it and you're watching a play happen. But for me, it didn't even register that they're like, oh, they're at a play and this is where things are going to happen. And then this guy comes on stage and is just like, the president has been shot. And then you see him die and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Very anticlimactic. I thought we would see something about someone trying to sneak up behind him and shoot him while he's watching this play and we just never got it. We instead got it in the form of his son hearing the news, his younger son, and him being sad. But we haven't connected pretty much in the entire movie with his younger son. I think there was some good moments with his younger son in there. But yeah, it was interesting. And I guess, you know, thinking of the funny parts of it, you have these two movies when you're looking at in relation to the ending you have these two movies where one of them has a twist ending right and then you have this one where you know what's going to happen the entire movie and it's like oh it's just too predictable (laughs) um and i always like to tell this story and for my friends who are listening they'll know this so in college a group of my friends were going to dinner and it was like a big group of us And one of our friends was sitting and she was watching Lincoln and we're like, all right, it's time to go. We got to go. And she literally said to us, she goes, wait, though, I want to see what happens. And we were like, are you serious? It's a fucking biopic. (laughs) We're like, have you not really brushed up on your history or are you only in the 1700s? Like what's going on? It's so funny because that is such a common knowledge thing. 
It is. And I get what she meant. Like she wanted to watch the end of the movie, but the way she phrased it and was like, I want to see what happens. We were like, seriously, (laughs) you want to see what happens to the biopic about Abraham Lincoln at the play? What the hell? He's going to free the slaves and he's going to die. That's what's going to happen. Everybody knows the ending of Lincoln. But yeah, so it was different in both of those movies. So I hear what you're saying, that that big, big part was just brought down to a couple minutes and I don't know how it, it like, would have changed the movie. The movie was great. So yeah, I, it just feels like too important of a historical moment to rush past like that. I guess, but even though it the, is on top of like a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. I don't know. I can hear what you're saying, but at the same time, I think that a lot of those things have been done before you've read about it. You've seen it in how many adaptations of Lincoln, how many biopics, how many documentaries, how many things are out there about Abraham Lincoln, about John Wilkes Booth, about all of that. It's common knowledge. Maybe when John Wilkes Booth gets his biopic, then we can see that scene come to fruition. Yeah. You got to wait around for like, the suicide squad of the Abraham Lincoln story and just get the villain's point of view. What if they did that? Because they made the Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter movie. I know, which we still haven't seen and we really want to see. So if you guys think it's worth it, let us know. But what if they just did that? What if they took Abraham Lincoln and just started putting him in all sorts of movies? That's fine. It, it would be weird, but whatever. I think it's a great idea. Okay, great. Anyways, we got off topic, but going back to our weaknesses, you talked about yours. My weakness for me was, I think, at also a fault of my own. So I am terrible at history. I am just awful. I never learned history, like all through elementary and middle school. Shout out the Catholic schooling for failing me on that. But I did not learn any U.S. history until I got to high school. So I still am just clueless on things. So when these things were coming up, like obviously I know who Abraham Lincoln is, but when all of these characters were popping up, I had no idea who any of them were or could I keep track of them for the rest of the movie? Like I couldn't tell you some of the characters names off the top of my head for this movie. And I think there should be some like contextual link with just your historical knowledge with this. And I should know who some of these people are, but I didn't. And so it's not that these characters were unnecessary or that these second character secondary characters weren't important but it was hard to remember who they all were and keep track of what they were doing and where they were. And as someone that went to public school in a fairly good public school and learned this, some of these names, I don't know. Uh, and I wrote some of them down, especially because, and we'll get into it in strengths, but there are some big name actors in here that are playing these roles. And I've never heard of these people before either. In order for you to have a previous knowledge of these names, I believe you have to have some type of interest in history. And if you don't, I don't think you'll know who Fernando Wood is. No idea. Still couldn't, still couldn't tell you, but that was Lee Pace's character, right? Yeah, exactly. See, you figured it out. Yeah, I figured it out. But at the same time it was, and I feel like this is a common theme we've been talking about in a lot of podcasts is the secondary characters and how they integrate into the film in a way where they remain secondary 
but also have some kind of substance to them that you remember them. And this movie, it was really weird because I got that part of it. Every single secondary character had some kind of substance to them. They were all doing something important. They were all playing a big part in this, but it it still was so many moving parts. And I think having the House of Representatives in so much and so many different people and they were going to all these different guys in these different states and trying to convince them to vote yes on this amendment. So I think that part of it is where it lost me is because it was oddly fast paced in introducing and integrating these characters into the story for such a long movie. I guess we can go into strengths now because one of my big strengths is the amount of star power in this movie because we have... And these are some fairly popular actors and there are some where you know them from something. I'm just going to go through the names of actors that are known by their names. We have Daniel Day-Lewis, Sally Field, Tommy Lee Jones, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, James Spader, Lee Pace, Adam Driver. These are big names that are in this. And Adam Driver's not, he's the one with the smallest role in the movie and even he has a character with a name you know he is Samuel Buckwith but you would never know that watching the movie yeah and I think it's that Spielberg pull right like he wanted to have that star power you don't make a biopic about Abraham Lincoln looking for a bunch of relative unknowns to do it because like I said there's so many different adaptations of his story And so many different contextual things for Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln family and John Wilkes Booth and all of that stuff out there that you want a movie that you're going to bring a lot of really good acting to the forefront with. Yeah, that's just one of my strengths, though. I also have the makeup. You touched on it a little earlier where Daniel Day-Lewis looks almost exactly like what you think of when you think of Abraham Lincoln and what you know from history books. Obviously, It's one of those things where we only know so much because we've never actually seen him in person, but he could look nothing like this. But from what we know, it's pretty accurate. Right. And that kind of handholds with my strength of this movie. And I did talk about the makeup and just being in character and how he felt like Abraham Lincoln. And even in interviews I read about him, And being involved in this character, Daniel Day-Lewis talked about how much he absolutely fell in love with Abraham Lincoln and personifying this man and how he felt so into this character because it was like almost a transcendent experience for him. But what I really liked in the movie, take the makeup aside, the mannerisms, the stance, the silhouettes. And so the silhouettes is my biggest strength of this movie. So they do a lot of really cool shots in this movie where you don't necessarily see Daniel Day-Lewis slash Abraham Lincoln. You don't see what they look like, but he'll be standing in front of a window in his study and it'll be dark and you just see his shadow slash silhouette and it looks so real. It feels like Abraham Lincoln is there. It feels so cool because you're not seeing an actor who's covered in makeup. You're literally just seeing the outline of someone whose stance, whose presence. And that's so great in what Daniel Day-Lewis did in this movie is that it's not just about an actor putting on eight hours of makeup and hey, look at, he looks a whole lot like him. It's his mannerisms. It's his characterization. It's his voice. It's all of those little things. And that was my biggest strength of this movie. I love that. 
there, because there were a lot of shots, not even necessarily, I know you went more into silhouettes and the silhouette of Abraham Lincoln, but there was one other part and it was a scene with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and he is thinking of enlisting and he goes and sees all of these bodies and these arms and legs that are in this pile. And it's the way that scene specifically is shot and he's standing on this hill and it's downhill. There's these body parts. And I think, like you said, the way it was shot was amazing. I loved some of these shots in the movie. Agreed. And transitioning over to... Oh, do you have any more strengths? I don't, unless you do. Just one. I really enjoyed these House of Representatives scenes because they were just full of almost action, even though there's not really any action going on. But if you ever watch any of that C-SPAN or anything like that, government doesn't work like that anymore. And we said that while we were watching this movie. We were like, wow, they really make the House of Representatives look like a rip-roaring fun time full of people with giant personalities. Um, People are like applauding, like someone just scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Which still happens, but the liveliness of them was really interesting, but I think it added a lot to the movie because this movie could have been very dull and very like, here's history, here's what happened, we're giving it to you, do you got it? Cool, thanks. But they added a lot of these really fun elements and it comes from those secondary characters and the supporting cast who brought that energy and brought that really fun, vivacious, you know, you had the people who were dissenting the amendment, the people who were agreeing with the amendment and the reasons why and how passionate they were about it. It was all felt like very different people in there. And it was really cool. Yeah, that's just what another strength that I wanted to add on because I didn't know if we would talk about it later. Okay. Well, going then to The Good Liar, we talked about some of the really cool shots in Lincoln. And there's a lot of really cool shots in The Good Liar. But for me, it was more about the internal tally that I was keeping through all of these shots. So throughout the movie, I felt like I was keeping a tally of the wins for Ian McKellen and the wins for Helen Mirren because, and I said, we'd get to this later throughout the entire movie. I knew at least that Helen Mirren had something up her sleeve. She wasn't just going to be taken advantage of. She wasn't just going to be thrown under the bus like this. Like there was something that she was going to do and there was something that she had up her sleeve. And I had a feeling she was going to win in the end. So throughout the movie, you're just keeping a tally of, oh my gosh, this is more bad news for her. So it must be good news for him. So when she talked to him about, I've been diagnosed with like having strokes and I take medicine and sometimes I don't take the medicine. And for him, that was like a giant win, like, oh, good, something that she has a weakness that I can exploit. And then it's so fun because in the end, when she's sitting in the chair in the house by herself and then he finds her and he comes and confronts her and She's talking about all of these things that she's been doing and that he's lying and she's pulling money out of their joint account. You're counting the tallies for her and you're like, win, 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 win. And you can see the buildup of her beating him. I love that you brought that up, especially because that goes into one of my strengths. And one of the reasons when I first saw Solo, the Star Wars movie, I saw it by myself and I didn't see it with you. But I told you one of the things that I like about it. And one thing that really gets me with movies is people backstabbing each other, people being skeevy. 
And that was one thing with Solo. And one thing, especially with this movie, that did it better than I've ever seen anybody do it. And it's every single person in this movie is backstabbing, lying, being deceitful, being more or less evil. And I love all of it. Yeah, there's not an honest single person in this whole movie. No. I just tried to think of it in my head. And I was like, maybe some shopkeeper they run into once in a while. But for the most part, everyone's lying. I guess maybe. No, not even them. I was going to say the initial investors, but they were. One of them was pretending to wear a wire. And the other one then was following Ian McKellen around trying to like have a revenge plot against him. So everyone was really, really skeevy and it was super fun. And I think another strength of this movie is just the twist of the movie, too. So spoiler alert, the big twist at the end is that Helen Marin wins at the end and takes all of his money and leaves him for broke with nothing. But she leaves him with nothing due to the fault of his own self. So those people you're talking about, those skeevy characters, they come around because she leaves him with $100,000 out of the millions that they had in their joint bank account. And these people who he was trying to scam earlier come around and are like, I want my hundred thousand dollars that you scammed me out of. And then he, they beat the shit out of him and they get the money. And so he's literally left with zero dollars. He's at the end of the movie, can't speak, can't move. They show him drinking with like water coming down the side of his mouth in this assisted living facility he's living in now. So he is just down to nothing. But the big twist too is something that I really liked because I didn't see the context of the twist coming. I saw the twist coming. I saw that Helen Marin was probably going to win in the end. And that's what made me a little upset reading some of these critic reviews because a lot of the critics say that this was so predictable. This whole twist was predictable. And I agree to an extent. I agree that Helen Marin winning in the end was something that I found to be predictable. But the method of her winning is so interesting because this all goes back to her childhood and how Hans, Ian McKellen's character, was her tutor and was trying to teach her English because she lived in Germany. And so Hans comes for their tutoring session and her three sisters are in like the ballroom or wherever and they're dancing and he comes in, tries to kiss one of them. They get mad at him and reject him. And then he goes into the tutoring lesson with Helen Marin's character, Lily, and rapes her. And so that's her whole revenge plot. And that's her whole point of doing this to him. And it was so shocking to see that because that's not at all where I thought this was coming from. I thought she was a con man conning the con man. And then to see the context of you don't remember me, don't you know me, was really, really fun. Yeah, it was not necessarily. I get what you're saying because it's it's not necessarily the fact that you saw the twist coming, but it's how the twist happens. Right. That is very good. I actually have that down as my other strength of this movie. And it is the Betty's backstory for her scam. And it really ties the whole thing up. And really, not that you ever respected Roy in the movie, but there were moments when I was thinking to myself, this guy's pretty good at scamming people. And it's just so great that everyone gets their revenge on this guy and how terrible he is. And what I loved about it, too, and I guess I can go either way because 
I don't know if you have more strengths, but my weakness is that it could have added a little bit more anticipation and suspense throughout the entire movie. I felt like everything kind of fell into place very comfortably and not with a lot of anticipation or suspense or drama. But the one piece you're talking about there with Betty and not knowing Betty slash Lily's whole backstory is really cool because we learn nothing about Betty slash Lily pre her being the age she is now until the end of the movie. We don't know anything she does outside of the fact that she goes shopping once in a while. She has this grandson who comes and sees her in the house and that's it. That's all we know about her. We don't know where she came from. We don't know how she was brought up. She never talks anything personal about herself throughout the entire movie. So when that comes up, it's that insight into who she was as a little girl And then everything falls into place and makes sense. I like that. I don't have a weakness. I didn't write one down. I couldn't really think of one. I guess my weakness would go in with my small detail because I'll do the small detail and then I'll tell you why I think there's a weakness in there. And the small detail is I really loved these scenes, how Roy was telling Betty and Steven, like Steven drove him around and he was like, hey, can you drop me off here for 30 minutes? And he went and pulled a scam in these 30 minutes and then came back downstairs to talk to Steven like nothing ever happened. And same thing goes with Betty when someone's trying to track him down to get their cut of the money. And he sees the guy and says, hey, Betty, you just go in the shop. I'm going to take a walk. I'll see you back in an hour. And he goes and he kills a guy and he pushes him in front of a train and comes back like nothing happens. And I thought it was really crazy to see someone so subtly murdering people and doing these terrible things. And that's why it makes him feel like he's an even bigger scammer than he actually is. That's why I think in the movie, watching it, you feel like he is a top tier scammer. He's willing to kill. He's willing to cheat. He's willing to beat people up. Some guy asked him for a bigger cut and he went in there with another guy and broke his hand. So that's my small detail. But my weakness goes into that because he also is 80 years old and somehow managed to fight with a guy and push him in front of a train. He's 80. Don't doubt the strength of the elderly. What's wrong with you? That's the whole theme we were just talking about is how important it is to give roles to these age groups where they can be badass and they can do these things. That's so cool that they did that. I'm glad he killed that guy. Sure. I'm just saying it was a little unbelievable, but that's what I had to reach for for a weakness because I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. And at the same note, he pushed him in front of a train and he got decapitated. He didn't get in a fist fight with him. He literally just had to trick him and push him in front of a train. There wasn't a whole lot of strength or skill involved. Fine. I have no weaknesses for this movie. It was perfect. (laughs) Okay, sure. Um, My little detail for The Good Liar is there is a really cool flashback scene that happens at the end of the movie. And the whole setup, as we discussed earlier, is that Ian McKellen comes into the house that he and Helen Mirren were sharing together and it's empty and all the furniture's gone. And this was after they just put all of this money in this joint account. And so he comes in and he finds her and she's sitting alone in a room in a chair and he's walking up to her and looking down on her as she's talking to him telling him all of these things that she knows he lied about, telling him all of these things about her history, about how she knew him. And it flashes back to that restaurant scene 
where she talks about how you thought I was a naive little old lady who you could take advantage of. And it flashes back to him walking up to the table as she's sitting down and him looking down on her as she's saying this. And then it flashes forward to the current scene with him looking down on her as she's saying all of these things that he has done to bamboozle her and all of these things that she's now doing to him. And it's almost like a really cool role reversal that happens through a flashback sequence. And I thought it was so awesome. Even though they're both in the same position. They're in the exact same position, but now they're in opposite positions because she has the actual upper hand. And I was like, that is a really cool transitional flashback scene to do. I really love that. I love that you brought that up because I didn't even think about it until you're telling me right now. So I actually really love that. And I I have another little detail for this movie because it had a lot of little details. And I talked about tallying her wins and counting her wins and that you always knew that she had something up her sleeve. And there's this one scene where they go to the museum together. They're looking at a painting and he says something and then walks away behind her. And the camera goes on her and she gives this little side eye. And that's the moment where, you know, she's onto him. She knows something. And gradually through the movie, when he would exit scene, she would give those little tiny, tiny facial movements that really denoted she's onto him. She's got something up her sleeve and it builds a little bit of that anticipation. Like I said, I wish there was more throughout the movie in general, but it builds on her character's anticipation. I thought it was so cool. I didn't notice that one either. I must have to rewatch this movie real quick. It's worth the rewatch. <laughs> because I didn't pick up any of that. Do you want to go to the small details of Lincoln? Yeah, go ahead. Mine is just one scene and through the entire movie, it's a pretty serious movie, but there's one scene that actually made me chuckle to myself a little bit. And it is when, like you said earlier, they are trying to get all of these votes to pass the 13th Amendment. And James Spader is one of the people tasked with this. And he said that he was talking to a guy from Indiana and the guy from Indiana pulls the gun out on him. And we get to see this scene. And it's actually really funny because the guy pulls the gun out and James Spader wrestles the gun with him and the guy shoots it in the air. And now he's has no ammo and he has to reload. And James Spader starts running away, but then he has to turn around to grab his things and the guy is still reloading. And I just think it's so funny that James Spader's character in his mind was like, oh, I forgot my stuff. I have to go back, even though this guy was going to try and shoot him. One of the best parts about that scene, too, is the background characters and that nobody moves. Everyone else is just sitting at that cafe watching that guy reload his gun, almost probably killing this other guy. Nobody does anything. Yeah, I just thought it was so funny and it was a slight bright spot in an otherwise drama. For sure. My little detail for Lincoln has to do with the sounds in the movie And it's one thing that really annoyed me, but also that I really respected. So in this movie, there's a lot of scenes in Lincoln's study. And throughout the movie, I was watching it and I was talking to Sean and I was like, what is that noise? Pausing it multiple times. I was pausing it multiple times because our dishwasher was running. I thought maybe something was squeaking in there because it sounded a little bit like how a dishwasher sounds if you have like a pot on the bottom and it's the water shooting up on it, but it was, uh, yeah, but it was a little squeaky sound. But every time we paused the movie, it stopped. So I was like, what is this weird background noise in this movie? So I looked it up and Steven Spielberg sent his sound guys to do like massive research and try and talk to all of these museum owners about 
Lincoln's actual artifacts. So a lot of the sounds they used in the movies was to build up anticipation and to build up the realistic sound. So that sound I'm talking about was a clock on the mantle of the study that the pendulum was swinging back and forth. And it was like this squeaky pendulum swinging. It was annoying as fuck, but I respect the hell out of it. And then the biggest small detail was that they actually used Lincoln's actual pocket watch in this movie. Really? Yeah. So they got it from the museum and they were like, does it actually wind up? And it still wound up. It worked and they used it. So you can hear when he's sitting at his desk, the sound of like a tick, 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 tick. And that's his pocket watch. That's Lincoln's actual pocket watch that they used. And I respected so much that. And just in general, the set pieces, like you saw the pillow he was laying on at the end when he died with the blood. And you can see that in museums still. And it looks the same. It's the same pillowcase. It's really, really cool. The attention to details was really awesome in this movie. I love that you brought that up because I didn't even bother looking to see what all the sound effects were. I just brushed it off as whatever version of the movie that we were watching somehow had some weird sound bites in it. No, they were all purposeful, much to my annoyance in some parts, but I respect it and I thought it was a really cool detail. I love that. You ready? Yeah, I think that we have two really good movies and it's getting interesting because now the movies we're watching are farther apart in seating. So this one is a five versus 12. Later, we're going to go into like the four thirteens and we're going to keep going into these spread apart ones. And it's interesting to see if there's upsets, if we're sticking with the top ones. So let's see what we decide here on the count of three. All right. Three, two, one. The The Good good liar. Liar. There you go. It's our biggest upset so far of this bracket challenge. We have a 12 seed beating out a five seed, which is really fun and exciting. I love seeing these big upsets, but we really liked both of these movies. Really appreciate both of these movies for the plot, their attention to details, their small details that made a big difference. Overall, a really fun watch for us and a really fun matchup. So we have The Good Liar. It's moving on to the next round. And then we're going to keep rolling on with our five verse 12 seeds. So our next episode will drop on Monday, August 31st. And we will be talking Mystic River, which is our fifth seed versus the zookeeper's wife, which is our 12th seed. Is that the one with Matt Damon? (laughs) That is We Bought a Zoo. We will not be ever, ever reviewing We Bought a Zoo. Um, So, yeah. So please check out that next episode of Mystic River versus the zookeeper's wife. Go check out our other episodes if you haven't listened to them yet. We're available on Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, a few other podcast network. We appreciate you guys so much for listening to us. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, send us some love, subscribe, give us some good ratings on Apple, on wherever you listen to our podcast. We appreciate it all. And for the Cinematchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we will see you next time. 